Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. It really is a privilege to bring God's Word to you today. I really have to start by thanking this church for welcoming us. Uh, I'm sorry to be preaching because Patrick isn't feeling well, but uh, let me just give you a little thanks here. Uh, I was an assistant pastor in Anacortes for a number of years, and we voted to close toward the end of the COVID time. It was a small church. Small churches have strengths just like larger churches do. It was really nice at our little church that everybody could know everybody. Um, But right now, we are very much enjoying being at a larger church where your strength is having so many people who willingly serve. We are, my wife and I, especially grateful to those of you who serve our children in age-appropriate ministries. Uh, My son is in middle school. My other children are younger. And I am thankful that my wife has never once felt lonely here. The ladies of this church immediately reached out to her. That means a lot to me as a husband. Thank you. I myself grew up going to larger churches, and I was the recipient of a lot of good teaching for my age group. Back in those days, we had something called flannel graph, which (laughs) studies have shown increased the future Bible knowledge of children by at least 13%. I sang the songs that I presume the kids in churches still sing, like, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. Did you not sing that song? Is that an East Coast Christian song? That's where I'm from. The West Coast needs to learn this song. Because at some point, when I was maybe 10 or 12, I actually got the message of read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Uh, I tried starting at the very beginning, which I've heard is a very good place to start. And I got a certain distance in Genesis before, like most of uh, us, you know, human nature kicked in and my efforts petered out. But then, while leafing through my Bible absentmindedly, probably during a sermon not wholly unlike this one, I had a red-letter Bible, and I happened to notice, hey, that's cool. The longest stretch of unbroken red letters in my Bible, you know, words of Christ in red, was this thing, Matthew 5 through 7. I'll read that. That was my advanced theological reason for getting into the Sermon on the Mount. But I have to say that I credit Jesus' words with giving me a firm foundation for my life in that key transition time that we call adolescence. By God's grace, I heard and I understood Jesus' words, and I heard the contrary words from my culture. They were at odds. At the very least, I knew that Jesus was calling me to obey him as opposed to my culture. So when the rains descended and the floods came, I had a rock to hold on to. And if you are in middle school or high school, I commend this longest stretch of unbroken red letters to you, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But I had to turn to Matthew 6 because I want to cover just a small portion of that sermon today. And that would include some of the introductory remarks that Jesus gives to the Lord's Prayer and then about half of the prayer itself. We'll actually spend more time on the introduction than we will on the petitions. We'll focus on Matthew 6, verses 7 through 10. Just get that in your mind. But we do need to read a little more of the context to to catch Jesus' flow of thought. So would you follow along with me, please, as I read the first half of chapter 6? I will be reading in the English Standard Version. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, 
Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. First, in this portion of his sermon, that's why we began at the beginning of chapter six, Jesus urges people not to pray, not to fast or give for the purpose of being seen and admired by others. Then he turns to give another piece of divine counsel about prayer. <clears throat> Don't pray like the pagans. Pagan prayer is different from Christian prayer. Let's work carefully through Matthew 6, 7 through 10, now that we've got the context in mind, making sure we understand what Jesus says so we can obey. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The New American Standard Bible that many of you are using says the same thing in different words. Don't use meaningless repetition. It's Gentiles who do this, Jesus says, which in Jesus' Jewish context basically meant unbelievers. Today, we might use the word pagans or the more antique word heathen. What does it mean to heap up empty phrases, to use meaningless vain repetition? <clears throat> the legendary Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones taught me as a model to start with what this does not mean. When Jesus says, don't use vain repetition, he can't mean, I forbid lengthy prayers. Solomon prays a very long prayer to dedicate the temple in 1 Kings 8. Daniel prays a long prayer. Nehemiah, Jesus himself prayed all night once. And his high priestly prayer in John 17 is long. One of the most meaningful prayer times in my entire life occurred up in Edmonton, Alberta, when I was visiting a missionary, and he said, why don't we pray together? And usually that's a, you know, 10-minute thing. He prayed for half an hour, and it was glorious. We had real fellowship coming before the throne of God. No words were wasted. That's not what Jesus means. He's not forbidding long prayers, nor is Jesus forbidding all repetition. This is the same Jesus who told the parable of the widow who kept hounding the unjust judge until she got justice. And Luke tells us that the point of that parable was that people should always pray and not lose heart. 
Paul himself tells, tells how he prayed three times to have his thorn in the flesh taken away. The answer was no, but not because asking over and over again is necessarily wrong. How many times have we parents said to our children, if you ask me again, the answer is going to be no. We say that quite often. Jesus is not saying that to us. God has far more patience than we parents do. And whereas my too much noise alarm goes off when I've just got two kids talking to me at once, and certainly when there's three, I just am beyond my capabilities, God can listen to all the prayers of all the Christians around the world in all their languages at the same time. Though I wonder if he gives us the necessity of sleep so he can at least set one third of us aside at a given time, you know? No, God could listen to all of us at once. God has a capacity to listen to you. So ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. Jesus is not turning you away. Jesus is not forbidding all repetition. So what is he forbidding? This becomes a little clearer when you look at what else Jesus says in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. At least the first problem with pagan prayer is that people who heap up empty phrases think I'm going to cut a deal with God. If I pump the BB gun 50 times, then he guarantees I'm going to plink that can on the fence post. Pagans think they can catch God or the gods, as the case may be, in what's called a quid pro quo. I fulfill my end of the deal. He has to fulfill his. Ancient pagans made sacrifices to this or that God to guarantee a good harvest or fertility. And that pagan impulse did not die in the ancient world. It is still very much alive. I read in a major American newspaper a photo essay of a Chinese man. They showed the picture of him crawling on his hands and knees. It was black and white, I remember, on a road that was around a lake in China. And they interviewed him. This is what he said. I got the idea to embark on this journey because my youngest child got very ill. I am lying on the ground because I am begging and asking a God to help me. Just asking in an ordinary way is not respectful enough. I have to show extreme respect for this God. I crawl four to six kilometers a day. At 7 a.m. I start. At 11 a.m. I put a mark where I stopped and come back to where I spent the night and left my luggage. Then I carry my luggage at the end of the day to the new place I reached. I'm a Buddhist believer. Walking around this lake is the equivalent of reciting 1,800 million money prayers. I do not know how many prayers prostrating oneself is equal to. It must be a lot more than 1,800 million. In the beginning, my whole body hurt, especially my arms and knees were ripped to shreds, but eventually the pain went away. Another example would be a Buddhist prayer wheel that gets spun around in the East. Have you seen these in National Geographic or on TV? Supposedly, every time the prayer wheel spins, a prayer goes up. So someone had the bright idea to connect a prayer wheel to an electric motor. But one, even the Buddhist leaders were skeptical of this strategy. One of them said, the merit of turning an electric prayer wheel goes to the electric company. It doesn't work. <clears throat> we laugh, that part is funny, but aren't these stories tragic? Doesn't your heart break for pagan people who are stumbling around, crawling around in their blindness? My friend, if that's you, the very man who preached these words that we read today, Jesus Christ, was the Son of God, and he gave his body to be ripped to shreds. He prostrated himself in a tomb for us so that we would not have to do these things. Repentance and faith 
in Jesus are all it takes to be heard by God. God rewarded this Jesus by raising him from the dead, and now he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Jesus is the way, the only way to God, but people prefer all sorts of pagan alternatives. The impulse that Jesus warns against here is still very much present in our day. But do these two examples from Buddhism seem kind of far away to you? They are literally physically far away from us here. Then let me give one a little closer to home. One I literally found in the yard behind my house. When we moved here from South Carolina seven years ago, we had an Airbnb house for two months. It was right over there near where the new YMCA is. There was a a playground uh, set in the middle of the neighborhood, which my kids absolutely loved. And one day I, at the edge of there in the grass, I saw something glittering and I picked it up. They were a necklace kind of looked like, and then I realized, no, not a necklace, it's rosary beads. I uh, know what rosary beads are, but I actually took this as an opportunity to kind of study it more. They are a tool, if you don't know, for counting prayers. Roman Catholics use rosary beads. Actually, Islam has a tradition also of using rosary beads. One real life example I found on the internet of how the rosary gets used by Roman Catholics tells them to pray through this prayer using the beads. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners now and at the hour of death. Amen. I will leave to the side for now the question of whether Mary can hear prayers at all, let alone in thousands of languages from all across the world. Those are things only a deity can do. I merely wish to draw attention to the number of times this official Catholic prayer guide I found said that people are supposed to repeat that prayer. 40. Now I have to say right away that by mentioning these beads while preaching Jesus' words against pagan prayer, I'm not saying all Catholics are pagans. And I'm about to critique our Protestant prayers too, so just wait. But if Jesus' words don't apply to the rosary, what do they apply to? I actually tried to do my homework and In the defense of Catholicism, there are at least two levels of Catholic teaching. There's the formal official teaching, and then there's what people actually do. Those are sometimes the same, often different. Both are important. It isn't fair to say the Catholic Church teaches pagan repetitive prayer if you haven't looked at what they actually say. So I did look, and they actually anticipate this objection. They say Jesus does not give us a formula to repeat mechanically. They say in their official statement of belief, the Catholic Catechism, that the rosary should engage thought, imagination, emotion, and desire. In other words, when you pray through a prayer with the rosary, counting prayers by moving beads in your fingers 40, 100 times, make sure you mean it each time. I just think that happens to be humanly impossible. How many of you have said the Pledge of Allegiance more than 500 times? I have, I went to school, we said it every day. How many of you thought about any of the words any of the times? I wonder. It takes immense mental and spiritual energy to really make yourself think about something when you repeat it over and over again. It just becomes meaningless. An official teaching is not the only level at which a religion is defined. The Catholic Church is full of people who haven't read the Catholic Catechism explaining official teaching and went online to see what actual Catholics do with the rosary. Here was a lay woman with 70,000 YouTube subscribers, and she said, the great thing about the rosary is that it's a repetitive prayer. She said this about the rosary, I truly believe that Mother Mary, because I prayed so many prayers, has helped me with so many obstacles. Did you hear that? Because I prayed so many prayers. So if you think Buddhism is utterly foreign 
and Catholicism. That's not me, although I know we have some former Catholics in this room that I know personally. How about Protestants? American evangelical Protestants like ourselves at EBC. Do we ever do things like this? I'm afraid we do. Do you ever say a quick prayer like a good luck charm? As little kids, did you pray over and over to be saved, just hoping that one of the prayers would stick? We all know how easy it is to string together a bunch of standard evangelical words and prayer, starting with, thank you, Jesus, for this day, and ending with, in Jesus' name, amen. Words that become, by their repetition, meaningless. One thing I appreciate about this church, and saw immediately, you saw it on display with uh, Luke just moments ago, was that the elder prayers all seem to have some thought and preparation behind them without showing off or just being merely rote. Do we need to hear these words of Jesus? The words of Jesus that say, look again, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Yes, we need to hear these words. Don't think of God like this. I've got to say it over and over and over and over and over and over again so God will get it, so he'll listen to me. No, Jesus says no to that. That's not the way prayer works. Jesus gives another explanation that helps us understand what he's forbidding. Look at verse 8. He says, do not be like them. That's the Gentiles, or I'm kind of saying the pagans. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. In a way, you could say that prayer is for us and not for God. We never, ever inform God of a need that he wasn't already aware of. Prayer, then, is a way of helping us remember what always remains true of him. He is present for his children. As one preacher said, don't think God is distant, that his eyes might be somewhere else, and you have to gain his attention. And don't think that God is uncaring or reluctant, that we have to persuade him to hear us. My wife shared with me a little video the other day in which a mom told a story how she finally got her 18-year-old son to clean his room after weeks of requesting and pestering did not work. She put little pieces of black rice on his floor in out-of-the-way corners, then pointed these out as evidence that his unsanitary habits had attracted mice. She didn't say it was rice. The boy was so grossed out by what he thought were mouse droppings, words I've never used in a sermon before, by the way, that he was tricked into giving his room a deep clean And bonus score for mom, his younger sister heard about the mice and cleaned her room too. What does it say about an 18-year-old boy that his mom had to trick him like that? What does it say about a God who has to be cajoled and pestered and even tricked before he'll do anything for you? You don't need to do this, dearly beloved, with the one true God. And of course you can't. It's foolish. You can't trick him into hearing you and doing what you want. Jacob, that trickster, tried it. Remember, he tried to set up all those poles of alternating dark and light to try to get the right kind of sheep or rams to be born to him. Utter foolishness. That's paganism, not Christianity. One of the most important mentors in my life, my longtime pastor, said once, we show, whether others are present or not, We show what we think of God by how we pray to him. I think that's profound. Let me say it again. We show what we think of God by how we pray to him. Are your prayers pagan 
or Christian? Maybe a mix of both. Now, our tradition, Reformation, Protestant, Evangelicalism, and if those words don't mean anything to you, that's okay. They will in time. Our tradition has tended to react to the problems in pagan prayer and the problems with the rosary I showed you and some problems of rote repetition among liturgical prayers. We've tended to react to that often by saying, well, all prayer should be spontaneous, extemporaneous from the heart. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Most of my prayers are spontaneous, extemporaneous from the heart. Nothing necessarily wrong, even though that can fall into the repetition trap, as I said earlier. But what Jesus actually does when he sets up a contradistinction to pagan prayer is he gives us a model, just like the ACTS model that Luke gave us, with the slight advantage of being inspired, however. The Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, if you look at it, 9 through 13 These are the words Jesus gives us. And if you look right at the beginning of verse nine, he opens it very simply with these words. Pray then like this. Let me give you a little orientation to the prayer. What comes after Jesus gives these words are kind of an introduction. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But a total of seven petitions and then a conclusion. The first three of these petitions, these requests or supplications, they're oriented toward God. The second group of them are oriented toward human needs and relationships. So we're just going to cover the first three, the ones that are oriented to God. And we're going to do so a bit more quickly even than we covered the introduction. Let's look then at the very first petition in verse 9. Pray then like this, Jesus said, not like the pagans, like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As I was studying this passage, it really struck me what one of the Bible teachers I I looked to for help said. He pointed out something that, you know, we all kind of know, but that I betcha many of you like me just read right past. Jesus starts with the word our and not with the word my. The prayer, as this writer said, does not instruct in an individual way, my father, my daily bread, my trespasses, but with the community of Jesus' disciples in view. Our father, our daily bread, our trespasses. There, There might be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around in the recesses of your psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples, our father. Father, too, is one of those, not deceptively, but just truly simple words of scripture. But have you you really thought about it for a while? Father is in one sense an analogy to our experience. God is not our father in precisely the same biological way that our biological fathers fathered us. What does he mean by using this analogy then? It has to be he invites us to attach to him, God, the kinds of associations we have with good fathers here on earth. Qualities like love and strength and protection and guidance and provision and discipline. A mature Christian will let the Bible shape his vision of what God the Father means, 
But God invites us by using this word in a prayer for beginners, as it were, to use some of our own experience to help us understand who he is. It's okay for a young child to start here. At least I sure hope it is in your family. God is kind of like my dad. By the way, fathers, let that weigh some on your shoulders as it did on mine as I was preparing this. Our Father, we pray, hallowed be your name. We don't say hallowed much anymore. Halloween paraphernalia, though, is coming back in stores, and you can see that same root there. If you don't know this, to hallow something is to set it apart as holy. And I could give a million examples. Here's just one. My wife, like most people, I suppose, gets cards and even occasionally letters from parents and grandparents, etc. They all get read. They don't just go in the trash. But eventually, after being read, and sometimes quicker than that, but always after being read, they end up in the trash. The only ones that get saved are the ones that I wrote for her, especially those from our time of dating. They're in a special box. They're set apart. They're hallowed. We pray together in the Lord's prayer that this is what would happen with God's name, that it would get set apart to get the honor it deserves, that God's name would be kept in the special gold box, even though we know that for all time people have loved to drag it through the mud, to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We pray the opposite right at the beginning of the Lord's prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be different from all other names. May it be considered holy. That's the first petition of the Lord's prayer. And let's turn right to the next. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? I, historically, as a kid, reading the Sermon on the Mount, always got this partially right, I would say. And I think I got the main part of the truth. I thought of your kingdom come as an entirely future event. Jesus is going to come and reign again on this planet, the second coming, we call it. And that's true. That's right. That is the main point, I think, of this petition. Your kingdom come. But how does the Bible talk about Jesus' reign? We're not going to turn there, but if you think of the key psalms, like Psalm 2 that was read today by Pastor Nathan, Psalm 110, that is the psalm most often quoted in the New Testament by Jesus himself, you're going to hear things like this. I have installed my king on the holy hill of Zion. Sit until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, Jesus is already reigning. He's already king. He is progressively working to put more and more under his feet. Not all of his reign is future. A lot of his reign is right now, and I'm looking at evidence of it. What are you? You are people that Christ, Lord willing, has brought under his kingship, under his reign. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying both for something future and something that is now. 
Theologians like to call it the already and the not yet. There's a major not yet. Lots of things that are not yet under Christ's feet that one day, some of which he will shatter with a rod of iron, and some of those people that are not yet under his feet, they will be brought under his feet as being part of his family. You are already in his kingdom. His kingdom has already come. Jesus said, my kingdom is within you. Your kingdom come has a future and a present aspect. I like to think of God's kingdom, and this is a somewhat challenging concept. I just recently, while um, using an auger to dig a hole for a fence post in my yard, and thankfully the very first time I ever dug a hole with an auger, I hit water. I don't know, many prospectors out in, you know, for uh, other places don't hit water. Me, the very first time. Unfortunately, it wasn't a well, it was a pipe. Anyway, my, uh, uh, my experience isn't so great, and now I forget what I was going to say about that. I remember. I was listening to something while I was doing this. That might have been one of my problems. I'm always listening during yard work to some kind of sermon or book or something, and the, the uh, Bible teacher there was saying, what is God's kingdom? It's the realm of his effective will. Did you catch that? It's the realm, the area of his effective will. So think of it like this. The places where I can say, clean your room and expect to be obeyed are precisely two, my boy's room and my girl's room. Even there, my will isn't always as effective as I would like it to be. But I certainly can't go into someone else's house and say, clean your room and expect the kids to obey. A man's home is his castle, they say, and I don't have authority. I don't have that authority in someone else's castle. To pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for his rule to spread wide and deep. It's to pray, bring all men's castles into your dominion and all parts of every castle. To pray your kingdom come is, well, in a way to pray what the next petition says. Look at it. In verse 10, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is both his demands, do this and don't do that, and his plans, this is what's going to happen. That's God's will. And I am a father too, and I have these things in my home. I've always told my kids that true obedience means doing what I say quickly, sweetly, and completely quickly, sweetly, and completely. That rounds up true obedience. And that's the way my obedience to God is on its best days. And that's the way heavenly obedience is. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will come a day when the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord because he has fully reestablished the realm of his effective will upon it. Won't that be glorious when there's no sin in us and we will always obey quickly, sweetly, and completely? I look forward to that day. You could see these first three petitions as asking for essentially the same thing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We want this world to be, as one writer put it, a time and place where God the King is honored, where his reign is clear and absolute, and therefore his sovereign will happens. Now, this writer also said it's not as if God is not the king over the earth, that we're waiting for that to be fully, and that's fully in the future. 
But the reality in this broken and rebellious age is that while God is sovereign, his perfect, peaceful righteousness has not yet consumed all his creation. All things are not yet under Christ's feet. So this is our prayer. As the psalmist said, bring all things under his feet. As Jesus said, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're praying for. This father who is so present that he knows our personal and individual needs before we ask, often before we even know what those needs are. This father who is so present that he's like that, but who is so high that he cannot be manipulated. You do not cut deals with God. He has indeed grand plans for restoring the cosmos. He will reestablish his rule through his son installed in Zion. He will place it all under Christ's feet. In telling us to pray these things, Christ is telling us to pray for his messianic rule to fully come, the second coming, the second fullness of times. But Christ's rule can spread now. Every time a new person is brought into the kingdom and every time you obey like the angels, you are giving a foretaste of the glory divine that will come on the last day. When I think of that phrase, your kingdom come, and if you've been with me in the small group, you've heard me do this. I often find myself praying it like this. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come over more hearts and over more individual parts of every heart, including, of course, especially mine. I am in the kingdom, but there's a rebel in there, the old man, the flesh. Lord, your kingdom come. I want to do your will like the angels do, quickly, sweetly, and completely. Lord, extend your rule to those rebellious parts of my heart, to the little closets in that castle that are locked. Lord, here's the key. Lord, open my hands to take the key. Please, I can't give it up. Open. That's my prayer. That ought to be your prayer. That ought to be our prayer as God's people. Now, I've preached only half the Lord's prayer so that Patrick will have to invite me back into his pulpit. <laughs> it's a true delight to preach God's word to people that I've come to love, to people who have begun to feel like family. My own family manages to have family dinner together most nights, I'd say, and we always pray before meals. Or I should say, I pray. And my dad used to do this, and so I've tried to carry on his tradition. Think about that situation. Or maybe your home is totally different and you got different kids at Walmart than we did. <clears throat> Most of those prayers happen immediately after I have done a lot of kid wrangling, getting the kids to come inside, getting them to wash their hands, telling them again to wash their hands, telling them to use soap this time, telling them to be seated, getting them to be quiet so I can pray, and sometimes I just start praying to make them quiet. <laughs> I'm acknowledging this to you. Now at least one of my children knows my trick. So most of my fatherly prayers are a little distracted, can I get a couple nods from dads that you know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. My prayers are sometimes a little more hurried than I hope they, than I hope they will be when the kids are older. And on a few occasions when I just, I had no two brain cells left to rub together after all the kid wrangling I had just done, I just said, you know, let's just all pray together the Lord's Prayer. We can use this model straight, word for word. You know, Jesus said, pray like this. Let's just do it. That's what we often do, or sometimes do, in, in my home. We can do that. I kind of want to give you moral permission. As long as you mean the words and don't repeat them a hundred times, thinking God will listen to me if I get to the right number, then, 
then there's nothing wrong and everything right with using Jesus' own words. But here's something else I love to do. I love to use the Lord's Prayer very much the way uh, Luke used the ACTS, which is also a very useful approach. I just use it as an outline because isn't it so hard to just kind of come up with something on the spot? I like to use, therefore, a scriptural prayer as a structure to build on. This is also useful with the Psalms. When you're confessing sin, go to Psalm 51 and pray through Psalm 51. When you're delighting in the Lord, go to Psalm 100 and pray, make a joyful noise, and turn it into, Lord, help me to make a joyful noise. You can use the scripture this way. This helps make sure that you expand beyond the things that just kind of happen to occur to you when you make up a prayer on the spot. And it's really remarkable, uh, and here's another point that I got from my pastoral mentor, that this prayer is more heavy on petitions than on thanksgiving. Jesus' words of warning about pagan prayer should not get you to fear asking for stuff. Adoration, confession, and thanksgiving are absolutely necessary parts of prayer. But what a mercy that I'm allowed to just get to give us this day our daily bread. Jesus gives us this model, and just as asking Mary for help or grace honors her in a way the Bible never says a mere human who should be honored, and ask, if you ask Mary for help or grace, that implies that she has the power to give those things. So it is with God. God invites us to ask him for things. And to ask God is to honor him by expressing your belief that he's actually capable of hearing you and giving you those things. It's, it's honoring him by expressing your belief that he's interested enough in your life and mine, as a father should be, to give you those things. That is Christian prayer. Prayer from a child to a loving father, a God who is love, who doesn't need to be cajoled, who knows what we need before we ask him better than we do. Let me pray now briefly then, and I'll pray for us as Christians and not as pagans through the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we confess that you are in heaven and we are down here on earth having a much more limited view of what's really going on. You are far above the traffic jam that we're stuck in and able to see where things are going. We hallow your name and pray that your name would be further hallowed. Lord, we want our songs to hallow your name. Lord, we want our lives to hallow your name. We want the way we deal with our kids to hallow your name. Lord, we pray that your kingdom, which sometimes seems so far away, but here when we're all gathered together, does seem closer. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that the areas where people are permitted to buck against your will would be shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, that the battle lines would form and that you would push disobedience out of this world. And then, Lord, in our own hearts, do the same. There's territory in there that remains unconquered. Lord, please, your kingdom come. We want to do your will like the angels do. Lord, help us to obey quickly and without grumbling and to do all that you say. Help us to avoid, Lord, avoid the things that you told us not to do. We pray, too, that you would give us what we need. And not too long, we're going to need some of that daily bread. We pray that you'd provide it, provide it for us. 
And what's more, in our rich nation in which very likely very few of us in here are actually lacking in daily bread, who very rarely feel the need to pray this, Lord, help us to regard you as the ultimate source of our bread, not to forget that you, our Father, have doled it out to us by giving us jobs, by giving us homes in a nation that has so much wealth. And here in this nation with so much wealth, nonetheless, we have incredible debts. We pray that you'd forgive us our sins and give us grace to forgive others. Help us to see the enormity of our debt so that others' debts against us seem paltry in comparison. And then, Father, all these temptations lie out there in the world and in here in our hearts because of that old man, the flesh. So we pray that you would not lead us into temptation, have mercy on us, but instead deliver us from evil. Lord, yours is the power and the glory, and it will be so forever. Amen.